This industry desperately needs an enema. I want the remodeling community to be successful. I want business owners to, to make a good profit. I want them to be able to estimate properly. I want them to estimate accurately. I want them to get control of the dollars and where they're going and how they're flowing. Um, and volume-based or single margin markup just doesn't do it. That's advocate for excellence in the construction industry. He's beyond reproach. Michael Anchel of OA Design Build. Today, he and I are going to do some back and forth on his method of transparent estimating, cost of project execution, or COPE. We all know that estimating is hard, and hopefully you take away some useful nuggets from this conversation. Estimating is a huge topic, and we did not get to all items like change orders and contingencies, but we will in an IG Live coming this Thursday, where I also want to talk about the planning fallacy. For those of you that are new here, my name is Mike Kenoki, and I'm a general contractor and reformed remodeler representing Zone 8 in Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm on a mission to catalyze the conversation in construction and give a platform to voices from across the industry at all levels of experience. The Contracting Handbook podcast is a distillation of nearly a thousand years of collective construction industry knowledge and experiences through discussions with my guests on over 102 episodes. It's a grassroots effort to share knowledge, empower contractors and tradespeople with knowledge and affirmation. It started off as a mission to make the business side of running a contracting business easier, but running the business is nuanced. There's making time for family, long days on the job site, irrational clients, stress, mental health issues, cool ideas, setting standards, honesty, integrity, respect, professionalism, and an absolute need to pull together to recruit more people into the trades, women in particular. We need more builders. What's more, the experiences are universal across the building community. We're not that different no matter where we live. Since the podcast launch in May 2021, the podcast has been downloaded in over 70 countries, and I'm proud to tell you that the Contracting Handbook podcast is now in the top 5% of all podcasts globally. I may independently record and produce the podcast, but every GC needs good talent. Thanks to an A-list of guests, we were able to build it and the people came, as they say. Before the podcast launch, I was cynical about the construction industry with a decent dash of hope. Now this hopeful cynic has found inspiration from the genuine nature of my guests, their stories, and feedback from my listeners. That's you. That's enough about the podcast. Here are some more tasty sound bites from episode 102. Remember to bring your questions to the IG Live coming Thursday, November 17th. Oh, and I've started putting some outtakes after the outro music. Did you guys know that? I was like working hard, doing jobs, and barely making any money. Well, when the numbers are really little, that 40% margin doesn't feel so big. When the numbers start to get big, that number gets really big. It does. And then it does. I'm building a spec home. Can I use Coke? I mean, why can't I mark up myself? What if I'm just, what if I'm just managing a project? Contractors are not craftspeople. What about the discount you're getting from your providers if you order versus them ordering? Are you are you passing on that savings to your clients? Are you if you are reliant if you couple your ability to cover overhead and pro and make money to the cost of stuff at the store and the cost from your subs, you're doing yourself a disservice. Do I devise some coefficient for each employee? <laughs> of of what they're actually going to get done in an hour when I guess my time. I say profit is is aspirational. It's what I hope to make on the job. Yeah, yeah. Right? 
But overhead is foundational. If I don't cover my overhead, I'm screwed. I haven't done anything about overages. What do I do using the COPE method? We talked about a while ago how on pro certain projects we made money and certain projects we didn't. And when we took a closer look, it was, it was distance to project. It was little details that, that took the eighth the margin because we were driving a lot more, spending more money on gas. Don't use margin and markup to cover all of the other stuff that you should be estimating. Does COPE work for trade contractors too? For instance, a roofer. I got bags and mad skills. I just landed my first bathroom remodel. How do I cope? The fastest way to differentiate yourself in this market is to know your numbers so well that when the client says, so what's driving this? You can say, here, let's look at it together. Let's sit at the same time side of the table. Let's go through the estimates that we got in from the trade partners. Let's look at the numbers. This was a yes or no question. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Welcome back to the Contracting Handbook Podcast. My next guest, Mr. Myth of the Markup himself, socially unfit, always true to form, outlier and outcast, it's Michael Angel. What's up, my friend? What's up, buddy? I just, that's an intro. I love it. <laughs> so why are you on this pedestal touting this blasphemous technique on estimating? Your critics are many and your friends are few. Why come out swinging? with a baseball bat cracking on about why volume-based estimating is wrong. Uh, oh, you weren't joking. Softball right out of the gate. <laughs> you know, in, remember, remember the movie Batman, the, the old one with Michael Keaton and, and Jack Nicholson, and he has yeah. this classic line, this town needs an enema. <laughs> <laughs> this industry desperately needs an enema. We, we, uh, we're a young industry. Let's, let, let me just say this. We're a very young industry. And the residential building and residential remodeling world is it's, it's like a weird little microcosm that has business practices that are completely bizarre and methodologies that make no sense to any other established business sector, including the commercial construction world, uh, which is much, much larger <laughs> than this one. Um, and I think that, you know, in fairness, I think when, when we had people who, were, who, who got into this industry, however they got here, <clears throat> It was rarely via business school, right? It was rarely via um, a lot of higher education. Uh, and the tools that they had on hand were came from other people in the community. And um, we, we picked up a really bad habit. And I'm a practitioner of that. I was a practitioner of that bad habit for about 18 years before... I decided to really do some digging and because it because it didn't make sense deep down. And so 
Um, yeah, I'm definitely on a mission to improve the industry. I'm, 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 I'm here to help. I mean, that's the, this, maybe that's the way to frame it, Mike, is I want the remodeling community to be successful. I want business owners to, to make a good profit. I want them to be able to estimate properly. I want them to estimate accurately. I want them to get control of the dollars and where they're going and how they're flowing. Um, and volume-based or single-margin markup just doesn't do it. You know, I was really hoping to trip you up, but it didn't work. Not only did you knock it out of the park, but you answered my second question too. Oh, crap. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. All right. So, okay. Why, but why do you care? Why do you care that the other people are estimating wrong? They're your competition. I know you don't have competition, but in the sense of the industry, like what, who, who gives a crap about the other guy? It's your business. You, you found a good way to do it for yourself. Why pass it on, Michael? Yeah. Well, I, be, um, cause that's how I'm wired. I actually, I'd say that's a cop out. That's how I'm wired as a cop out. Uh, I'm. A, I actually believe that remodelers like to help each other. I, I. I think that this industry actually has folks who really want to see each other succeed. There's plenty of work. It's not like there's a shortage of it. Um, and you know, I benefited when I was starting out in 1995 by having. Um, I joined an association, I joined NARI, I joined NAHB, and I I surrounded myself with folks who'd been at this for 20, 30 years and learned all kinds of things from them about what to do. And, and our early systems and processes, I feel like we got to leapfrog some of the learning curve as a result. So this is paying it forward. This is, I think it's part of our responsibility in this industry to you know, as we get better at stuff to make sure that we share that information you know, with the rest of the industry, help them all improve. Yeah, that's pretty contract handbook podcasting, isn't it? <laughs> Very, you know, Paul Wellstone said, we all do better when we all do better. How long have you been in business? So it's 28 years. How old are you? I'm 48. <laughs> Almost 49. Got, got a month or two. So you estimated wrong for 18 years, correct? I, I estimated really wrong at the beginning. For like the first few years, I was like really, really horrible at estimating. Didn't understand the difference between margin and markup and got into trouble. Now, I was like working hard, doing jobs and barely making any money. All right, elaborate. Tell the crowd what's the difference between margin and markup. This is very important. Sure. I think the easiest way to understand it, my elect I'll just say my electrician is the one who explained it to me because I was I wasn't getting my numbers to balance out. And he was like, um, did you just did you mark it up 20% instead of putting a 20% margin on the job? And I was like, I hit plus 20% on the calculator. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? And he started laughing. The easiest way to understand this is. If you had a if you have a hundred dollars and you were to mark it up 20%, you'd have $120. Yeah. Yep. And then if you were to decide to give somebody a 20% discount, 
like friends and family. I'll do it at my cost per se, right? Some people talk about that. So I'll give you 20% discount. Well, 120 minus 20% is not 100, right? It's going to take you below 100. And so one is markup and the other one is the margin. And the two numbers are often used uh, interchangeably. And if you're, if you're really fluent with it, fine. But, you know, a, a, an industry standard or a goal that was set um, uh, back in the 70s and the early 80s for the industry was to, to achieve a 40% margin, which would be a 68% markup. So your electrician came up with this method that we're going to talk about today? Don't know the electrician or, contrib come up. or, or contributed. <laughs> no, the, the electrician just got me to mark start marking up my projects using 1.35 as my multiplier, so that I actually was achieving a 20% margin. Mm -hmm. And then I went out and uh, you know was talking to other remodelers and reading magazines, and I kept seeing this 40% margin, and I thought that's impossible. I could never charge that, and I just kind of worked my way up, 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 up until I was charging that. But I had this, um, I, I ran into this big problem. If I take a, pro let's say, let's say I, I estimate my project, right? I get my lumber, my trade quotes, right? Put it all together, my labor, put it all together. And I'll use just a simple, we'll use round numbers, make it simple, right? And the project is $100,000. My COGS are $100,000. And I'm supposed to be putting a 40% margin on that and selling it at $168,000. Well, when the numbers are really little, that 40% margin doesn't feel so big. When the numbers start to get big, that number gets really big. It does. And then it does. And then the client says, oh, it's $168,000. Help me understand how we got there. <clears throat> Because I thought, you know, I we went and picked out these materials and they have an, uh, an understanding of the cost of materials because they have the internet, <laughs> right? It's pretty easy. And they have a friend or a family or someone who's in the plumber or electrician or something. And they're trying to figure out how it is that if we have, you know, $30,000 of cabinets and $8,000 of plumbing and $8,000 of electric, how did we get to $168,000? And then we get into the, well, I don't want to share my numbers. And then there's that whole defensiveness thing comes in. And then the mm -hmm. client, God forbid the client say, well, I don't want to spend $168,000. I want to spend less. So what can we take out of the project to get it down to a more reasonable number? And when you go and look at the stuff, well, you, you, can, you can't take out enough stuff to get it down to 100. And in the process, you have this sinking feeling inside as you're watching your margin just evaporate, right? Mm -hmm. Because you connected all of your profit to the cost of goods sold. And so then you, then there's the shell game. And I think most contractors are familiar with this, right? You know, where can I tuck a little profit over here and tuck a little profit over here? And, and then when someone says something like, well, you know, transparency and estimating is a really good idea, understandably, the reaction is super negative. Like, no way. I don't want anyone to look, you know, at my numbers. The client just needs to accept my price. You know, and that you 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 get that kind of macho 
maybe it's not, maybe macho is unfair, but you get this um, my way or the highway. Customers just need to, you know, buy into my numbers. Uh, they need to trust me. Uh, I'm selling service. Uh, I'm the only one in my market who offers this level of craftsmanship. All, all of that's nonsense, right? Re reality is you're not particularly great at estimating. Your estimate um, isn't particularly sophisticated. You don't necessarily know how much of that big big number is going to overhead or project management uh, or, and how much of it is even profit. And so it's, un, it's an uncomfortable subject. And so we deflect and we avoid it. 100%. Yeah. Let's... <clears throat> Let's kind of walk through some scenarios um, because the diversity of people listening and the and the uh, the different scales of businesses we all run and the number of employees or or subcontractors or we're trade business. There's so many different people listening. So it's, mm -hmm. instead of just throwing a broad net on everything. I want to walk through it like this. First, I'm building a spec home. Can I use Coke? And we haven't even called it by name yet. <laughs> so tell me about that. So the cost of project execution method, which I, I used to call it FAT, profits, honesty, accuracy, and transparency, but it didn't catch. So Coke, <laughs> is, Coke is the bit that stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Um, spec home, you can use it internally. In fact, you should use it internally. You should, you should very much know uh, your numbers and where your overhead allocation is and what you need to sell that spec house for in order to make money. However, in spec building, spec building is like going to a restaurant or buying a car. It, it, you are choosing to buy an object. You've got a couple of models, a couple of price points, and it is the manufacturer of that thing or the designer of that thing who's decided to create the product, right? You've created a house, uh, you set a price point, and you have uh, a level of fit and finish and size and features that you think will, the market will find attractive. Same as when I pick a restaurant uh, because I like the menu and I, and I pay way too much for the food because, but that's what it is, right? And so anybody who uses any of those analogies, like when I buy a car, or when I buy a restaurant, what they're talking, what they don't realize they're talking about is a different business model entirely, which would be spec building or even semi-custom home building, right? Where there's, you pick from one of a few models and you customize some parts of it. I want in-floor heat in the bathroom or, you know, I want the upgraded appliance package, but it's still basically a pre-shaped thing with a couple of modules that you can pop in and out. That's not remodeling. That's definitely not custom home building. Those are right. very, very different things. Okay. What if I built a custom home? I'm not going to, but now yeah. what? Someone calls and says, makes me such a good offer. No, well, the offer's not there. We can't talk about a good offer because- <laughs> There's no was, offer. There's, the, that would really defeat the purpose of this conversation. Okay, spec house is it applicable? I'm sorry, a, a custom house is it applicable here, or are we are we focusing more on remodels? Um, I would say custom home, true custom home, 
and, and remodeling. Okay. Um, totally. Okay. So let's start walking through this. I've met them. I've got the drawing. I start putting materials list together so I can get that off to my providers and start calling subs. How am I, how am I pricing my materials? So first, first thing, and this is the, maybe the, one of the cornerstones here. Um, usually in a cut, actually, one of the cornerstone things is it is you're not going to mark up anything. That's maybe a cornerstone foundational component, right? You're not going to mark up anything in your estimate. So that you can clearly see what things cost. This is for yourself. This isn't for the client. This is just for you. So you're really, really dialed in on what everything really costs. Yeah. Yeah. You have my attention. And in addition to the things that we're used to estimating from our trade partners, our lumber yards, um, if you've got your own crews, the labor that you've calculated for framing and whatnot. Um, we're also going to estimate the cost to execute the project. Okay. I, well, I want to walk through the, that bit by bit here. So you're not going to mark up materials. How are you going to make it? How? So for, for most people, markup of materials also kind of includes any warranty that if something's scratched, like let's say my cabinets show up scratched or damaged, if I've or my guys scratch it, I've marked it up, I cover it, I own those. But if a client pays for it and something gets scratched, it's on them, for instance. That is a, that is a very common thing in the industry. So you're letting clients buy materials as well? So um, <clears throat> sometimes, yeah. I mean, I don't care. End of the day, I don't, I don't care a whole lot who buys the materials. Um, but I think I take a step back from that because we're not in the construction phase. So some people, some, this sounds a little like, like, there's op like if you wanted to do open book, for anybody who's done open book out there, this is not, this is not difficult because you have to be insanely detailed and everything is visible to the client through the whole process, right? Mm -hmm. If you, how you choose to perform the construction, like we still do fixed sum contracts. We are, we, we estimate using the system. We choose to be transparent with our clients. That's a choice. It's not a requirement. When we're in construction, we go back over to fixed sum. So the, Who's buying the materials? I prefer to buy the materials because I have it in my estimate for us to manage those materials and make sure that they arrive on time and we can do our quality assurance and make sure the light fixtures aren't broken and, and all that fun stuff. Absolutely. But warranty is a line. Warranty should be something that you put into the estimate for yourself so it's really clear what you've set aside for um. Uh, contingency, I, I would say contingency, not necessarily warranty, uh, but also warranty long-term, right? Because at 11 months, or depending on what state you're in, you're going to want to do some warranty work, right? So you need to have money in there that will cover your coming back. And that's going to be based on the complexity of the project. So 
a home is by and large is a home, right? Remodeling could be all kinds of different projects, bathroom, yeah. kitchen, a large addition, interior finishes. The, the degree of risk changes based on the project type. And so your what you're setting aside for warranty isn't connected to cost. It's connected to risk. Okay. I'm going to stick on materials here for a minute with, with clients oh. because, okay. So what if, you know, my, my fear with clients, you know, the challenge for me as a, as a builder remodeler is getting clients to get on their fixtures right away. Study, like know what you want in your house. Now start learning because your deadline's coming, but if they're ordering everything, you know, what if they're not, they're missing the schedule or they, or they, misorder on quantities and your subs about to show up and you're short and they're going to have to come back. I mean, these are, these are things that we face all the time. People don't get on top of lights. I, I, I have my clients buy certain things, you know, that, that have, that you can't put a fixed price on because they're going to change their mind on lighting or buy a ceiling fan. that's you know, 2000 bucks instead of 500 bucks, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So, so there's so many factors involved, but, you know, what if they don't deliver? What if they don't get it there? So I think that the decision to include the client <clears throat> in the purchasing of, of fixtures and stuff like that is there's, I think it's got to be pretty limited. I mean, we don't, I don't, I don't okay. love doing okay. it. I'll, I'll throw it out there as an option. There's a difference between them knowing what the fixtures cost. Like, right. I mean, when we look at light fixtures, we're going to go to lightingdirect.com we're going to look at those light fixtures together, right? And they're going to make their selections. I like this one. Well, they saw exactly how much that fixture cost in that moment, right? So they really, they really like this $500 light fixture. Um, it would, it's a very awkward moment to then say, well, <clears throat> if I buy it, it's $750. If you buy it, it's $500, right? That makes the client want to buy it which I don't want. I would rather control the process. And, and I think that your question about that whole timing, everything you, I don't like to, I don't like to have other people messing with our process. And so I'm going to resist that. But if the homeowner is going to place the order during design and feels confident in it, then I, I guess, you know, for certain items that would be okay. okay. The, there's another piece though, so that we have different, you mentioned earlier, of different types, like there's kind of a wide field here, right? Yeah. And we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to question you about those later too. So. All right. All right. Then yeah. I will hold, I will hold that. Cause I was going to say you're, you need an architect or a designer on your projects to manage those clients before they show up to the builder. Okay. One more question on the clients. What about the discount you're getting from your providers? If you order versus them ordering, are you, are you passing on that savings to your clients? Are you saying? I go to this box store or this provider for all my lumber and they give me 5% off. I'm going to give that to you or do you just curious? I, this is a, this is a, this is a, this is an ethical question, I think. Okay. Um, and I, um, I think kickbacks are problematic. I don't, I, I don't think that they're, I don't think that they're entirely ethical. You don't think that that your provider who you're say spending five hundred thousand dollars in a year with one 
that they should give you a little discount? No, I'm not saying that they shouldn't. Um, I would I would like to say that we should get better pricing. I would like to see it reflected in the estimate that I get, not after I purchase it and then I get a kickback. There are some companies that have pretty hefty kickbacks. And I think that the, the my problem with it is this. I was hired as a contractor, which means legally I am the representative of the client. Like they, they literally hired me to represent them to the industry. Well, is the advice that I'm giving them in terms of window selection, door selection, cabinet selection, is that being biased because I have a better kickback from one vendor versus another? Mm. And then am I able to ethically really truly do my job in making a recommendation for one product versus another if I'm getting some sort of thing in the in the back? That's not, I don't think that that's right. So I need to keep that clean. I will, I, I, I'm sure there's a couple of folks right now who are cursing, a, a running a blue streak and they think I'm off my freaking rocker, but definitely. Um, I, I think that that is also different than like our lumber yard. We get 7%. If we pay on time or if we pay early, whatever, we get like a 7%, uh, 7% back. Right. Mm-hmm. That's different. That is nothing to do with a specific product. That is just if we're paying our bills on time, that's just something they've set up for us. And not every project, and depending on how the financing works, do you get to take advantage of it? And can you count on it? So I think that would be an exception to that rule. This was a yes or no question. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. There's no yes um, or no. no. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I, I actually hadn't considered, I've never gone to one person or another because of a, because of a certain amount of money I save. I, I go to where I need. That is interesting though. Okay, so what about marking up subs? I mean, why can't I mark up my subs? What if I'm just, what if I'm just managing a project? So I think that um, this may be a challenging idea for folks as well. Builders are, builders are not craftspeople. Contractors are not craftspeople. Mm-hmm. We covered this in my other in our, in our other podcast, and you guys should go back and listen to it because that's cool. That was when I first met Michael. Yeah, that's a great talk. So we're we are literally in the management business. Yeah, if you happen to have labor in house, cool. If you don't have labor in house, cool. I I don't care. But you're you are definitely managing lots of different trades in an entire process. So um, should you mark up your subs or not? Uh, no, I don't think you should. I think it's, I think it gets confusing when you do. And the, the, the underlying biggest issue that I have with all of with is that if you are rely, if you couple your ability to cover overhead and, and make money to the cost of stuff at the store and the cost from your subs, you're doing yourself a disservice, Right. Because if you go out and get different estimates and one is lower than the other, even though the management for the task is identical and the time it will take for the task is identical, the money that you will make is not. And for no logical reason, there's no reason for us to be tying our ability to make money to the cost of the thing that we're creating for the client. Okay, on... 
on Remodelers on the Rise. Shout out to Kyle Hunt. What's up, Kyle? You said that you use capacity-based estimating for employees and something else for project managers. I, I don't know if I heard correctly, but so tell me about that because, because I've had employees and each person I employ has personality, generally very strong, but you know, specific skills, focus, um, plus they're human. They're not always hundred percent. You, you, you do, do I devise some coefficient for each employee of, of what they're actually going to get done in an hour when I guess my time? So tell me about this. Ooh, that's a good one. So um, capacity-based capacity, capacity markup is not new. It's been around for a long time. Um, it's really easy to do if you're a single trade if like if you're if you're in this if you're doing the same thing over and over and over, it's very very predictable, very measurable, very, very easy. Um, in our industry, our industry, admittedly, it gets a little bit harder. At the end of the day, you have to look at what is the total burdened cost of that employee, and realistically, what can you expect in terms of number of hours that you can utilize them to make money. Right. So they got some vacation time. They've got some PTO. They've got some sick time. They're going to have some down days. You're going to have some down days. Right. You can't you can't use 12 months. You can't use the whole year. Um, as your data point. Right. So I, I use 10 and a half months. That's what I use as, to figure out like roughly how much usage do I get out of out of an individual and then the number of hours then that I can bill for the year and uh, that dictates how many projects I can take on and depending on what I um, hope to make I need to or to, at least to cover their costs I have to make sure that I've set their wage at a rate that for the number of hours that they can produce work that the, that that we are covering that we are covering their costs for that number of hours Okay. So a basic, so for example, like a basic burden might be um, like I've got a, a carpenter at say 30, $32 an hour and their basic burden rate might be $43 an hour and um, their bill out rate then for, uh, for the 10 and a half months, I might say set it at uh, $92 an hour. Because I don't, I won't, I won't get, I, 43 is the burdened rate at a year, right? But I need to change that because I'm going to lose a bunch of time. And so I need to adjust that rate so that I'm definitely covering all of my costs on that employee. So you're projecting what the hours they're going to work and then kind of assigning that labor burden to each project? To, well, to each person. So there's you this can get you can get super 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 in the weeds and i think if you're a large company say 40 plus employees then you need to do that if you're a smaller company say 15 or less employees you're going to pick our rate because you don't know which of your people is going to be doing the work yeah 
So yeah. if your, your top carpenter, um, you know, costs you $47 an hour and your low level person uh, is, you know, $19 an hour, $22 an hour. But on that particular job, you got to send them both out or the one guy is sick and you got to put a mid, mid-level person. It, it gets too messy for you to try to jumble and manage all those. So you got to kind of work with your most expensive person and just assume that that's the rate across the board. For, and that's, is it super accurate? No. Is it good enough for a small company? Yes. And for the volume and the size projects that you're going to be doing, I'm going to say, you know, under $2 million in terms of the, a size of a project, it, you, it's fine. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to wager that most small remodeling companies, I could be wrong. Let's say you have two or three, four employees mark up their, their employees to take profit. I know, I know you don't like this, but it's probably what really happens or to cover themselves when they totally hose themselves on guessing how much time the project is going to take. Yeah. And they've still got to have their crew there. I've done it. The crew's still got a week left and you're out of money. Yep. Now I've got nothing. I've got, I haven't done anything about overages. What do I do using the cope method? So the cope method is, so I, yeah, no, I, yeah, I totally hear the, the, the cope method. The purpose of the cope method really is for us to, is actually not, not so much on the labor side at all. Um, I feel like that should be in standard estimating. The cope is really how okay. we bring in all the execution of the project into our estimating, but it's the same challenge. How I, in fact, I got a really, really nice message from someone on Facebook who's looking at taking the class. By the way, there's a class. People can take a class on this. We're teaching a class. It's a six-week class. And can I say the website, Mike? Yeah. Of cost of, it's it's costofprojectexecution.com. And we're going to, it's a six-week thing so we can really work with folks and help them actually implement the methodology and get good control of their numbers. So little tiny plug. And I think you told me before we started, you have 27 people enrolled right now. I think we're somewhere in the mid twenties. Yeah. And what is this, what is this, what is this uh, uh, program cost? Um, Let's throw it out there. Uh, I think until the end of the day today, it's about, it's two grand for the six classes. Mm -hmm. And then it goes up to being 2,500 bucks. Okay. And so that's, this cheap compared to what your slippage is on your jobs. And you know that I'm right when I say that. So absolutely. In <laughs> Kyle, in Kyle Hunt's words, it's slippage or grippage. Slippage or grippage. Okay. Uh, so this and, guy and writes, you guys, yeah. And for everybody listening, this is recorded on November 4th. So the deal is over. It's 2,500 bucks now because I think this is going to drop on the 14th. It's a good point. The, yeah. There was no deal. You never heard There's of no it. deal. <laughs> um, okay. So this guy says, uh, I'm not, he's like, I'm just really interested in this method. Uh, he's seen other remodelers who've adopted it and how excited they have, they have been after it. It's, it's been in, um, implemented in their businesses and, and how much more profitable they are as a result. But then they're like, but I don't even know, this is like, it's too much for me. It's too complicated. And I said, well, tell me more. And they said, well, I don't even know how to estimate the amount of time it's going to take for my guys to do the job. Right. And I yeah. hear that. And I, what I would say is that 
that that yes, there is foundationally some estimating work that needs to be done. That's not this, right? There are there are um, estimating. Man, we should we should we should have to be taught estimating before we can go out and bid on projects, right? It would make a big 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 difference. But um, figuring out how long it takes your people to do a job, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. You can go to some of the national sources that have um databases on you know how long should it take to install baseboard how long should it take to install a window and you can use that information and you can assign your labor rate to it and that's that's one way to estimate it the other is to track it you know actually spend a year and have the guys filling out timesheets for every task that they're doing and I kind of, I kind of did that. Uh, it wasn't exact methodology because I was inventing it at the time, but it was very, very useful to look back at those numbers a year later when you're doing a similar project. And and I'm going to keep, keep going on here for a second. I do think I agree it would make a huge difference if we were, if we had to take some training and estimating first. And I really hope that this podcast provides uh, some solid base for anybody who wants to learn about estimating because it's the bane of our existence sitting in front of a computer for one and then guessing just guessing pulling pulling it out of the air especially when you don't know and you've never done it before a, a, a certain kind of project but and i want to also tell everybody that michael and i are going to go live thursday following this podcast on instagram so you can ask questions that you might have where we were unclear and you know, speaking in tongues. So, <laughs> yeah, we're not paying attention to each other. The the estimating is complex, and it is. Here's my here's maybe here's the biggest part of my pitch. Maybe not the biggest part. I always say that, and uh, it's not the biggest part. A part of the pitch. Building stuff is complicated. Uh, estimating is complicated. Okay, so when you we, we do all this complicated stuff, building and estimating, and really trying to figure out how to build these houses and these complicated structures, it is a cop-out when we get to the end of the estimate and we use a single margin multiplier or a volume-based multiplier. We're not doing the rest of the work. We didn't make a proper overhead assignment allocation. We didn't actually identify our profit, that big giant number. You have no idea how much of that is your profit and how much of it is your overhead. And that's a mm -hmm. huge problem. And you didn't go through and assign numbers to to build the project, all of the time that it takes to meet with the client, get the permit, load the materials in, return the materials, all of the stuff that is actually what you do. <laughs> That's, that is, should be something that you are, is much easier to estimate, in fact, than, than anything else. Man, it's like you came into my house and looked at my notes before we talked. You're, <laughs> you're, you're predicting everything I'm about to ask you. Tell me about what is overhead assignment? Overhead assignment. Um, so you have to cover your overhead. Uh, if you've got, uh, if you're chucking a truck, maybe you have really low overhead. And then there are going to be companies that have buildings, maybe one or two story buildings, uh, vehicles, trucks, uh, Ladder jacks, scaffolding, right? Is, is, over, is the overhead just cogs then? 
Overhead is all of the stuff that is um, not the project, right? Your marketing budget, your office manager, some of some of your office manager's duties, um, your general manager, maybe some of their duties. Uh, I mean, that you, every one of us should be able to, and, and actually really should, it's a really important exercise to go through and understand, look at your year end, go back to the last couple of years and look at your books and really get clear with, this is my overhead and these are my projects. And, and what, um, what overhead allocation requires is that we know what our overhead is and that we properly allocate it to projects over the course of the year so that before the year is ended, we're good, right? Yeah. So everybody's glazed over. Sorry. No, <laughs> this is a hard, this is not easy to talk about or understand. As simple as some of it is, it, it's, it's a challenge to understand. So for instance, my CPA just said my overhead's just 30% and, and straight up, I'm serious. But Michael, does overhead change with each project? No. It doesn't? Static. Why? Because overhead is everything outside of the project. Overhead's going to be my com the computer, the camera that I'm using right now to talk to you. Um, it's going to be the ads I put in magazines. Uh, I'm overhead in my company. It's very exciting. I like to be overhead. Um, I'm not in the revenue generation side, right? I'm I'm mm -hmm. a cost of the company. I'm overhead, and and you determine your overhead and your budget for your overhead in the year before you do the work. So I'm budget for 2023 overhead in 2022. Okay. Okay. So I've got so, to come up with $338,000 to cover. This is OA here. That's my overhead, $338,000. I got to cover that. Okay. But each project has different, different wheels and spin. For instance, we talked about a while ago how on pro certain projects we made money and certain projects we didn't. And when we took a closer look, it was... It was distance to project. It was little details that that took that ate the margin because we were driving a lot more, spending more money on gas, spending a lot more time away from the job site because we just had to travel to go get more stuff and blah blah blah. How does that play into this? You teed that up so beautifully for me. Thank you. None of that is overhead. That is all direct project cost. Okay. How do I compensate for it? You got to put it in there. You got to, you got to, uh, I, so I have a line in my estimates um, and it's uh, for every week that the project will take. Um, I have a week of drive time. I have a minimum that it starts with. And then for every additional week, I have another line that I add in for each additional week of the project. So if it's a 15 week project, it gets 15 little, you know, dumps. And that number is adjusted based on the price of gas. 
And I can add in, a, uh, if I'm going to be driving more, oh, I'm in Minneapolis, so I'm in an urban center. But if it's if I'm going to do anything where it's going to be more than a 30-minute drive, then I need to add, I'll have another line that I'll add, which is a distance fee, right? Because it's just, it's going to take more time. It's going to take more gas. So that's part of our estimating. That is the cost of project execution. That is exactly what the cost of project execution is, Mike, is don't use margin and markup to cover all of the other stuff that you should be estimating. If you're going to take a project that's an hour and a half away from you, you that's got to be in the estimate. Okay. The putting my salary in overhead is interesting. And I, because I do pay myself a salary every year and it is overhead. But when I was running a crew, I was considering my time per project. Not so I, and I, and I felt like I had to do that because I had so many projects going. So I was trying to allocate my time each day to each project and include that in those quotes. What's the difference between me putting that, my salary just under my labor uh, cost for a job and allocating it to a line item? And I think this is where, where COPE really uh, separates from a more classic way of estimating. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of modelers straddle this line between working in the business and working on the business. And they're, they're not a hundred percent overhead and they're not a hundred percent billable. And when you go through the tasks and you assign hours to the tasks, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're covering whomever is performing that task. So if you get super busy and you need to hire another person, that person is covered, right? They're right there in the project. Their hours are all there. If you're going to take it on, then you are getting compensated. You, you, you're performing work. You're part of the project cost. But it should be delineated by, by hours spent and on the task it's spent on. So in the, at the end, you have presented a transparent quote to your client that has your expenses, exactly what it's said at the store. You know, they can, you, you actually do a, 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 a spreadsheet with them where they're looking at it, you're talking about it together. There's okaying things. And at the end, it has your overhead costs and your, and your profit as a line it item. It's visible. Yep. It's very clear. Okay. It's always less. It's always less than the, we get, we go through the estimate and we get to those bottom two lines and it is always less than they think. Like they, they get to it and they see it and they are like, wow, thought it would, I thought, thought it would have been more. Um, or they say something like, yeah, you've got to make, you, we understand you've got to make profit. We got it. Your, your profit on this job is $62,000 or whatever, whatever it is. We get it. That's, that's yours. That is an interesting uh, conversation. That was, I mean, I, my clients have an idea, but I've never said this exactly what I made on your job. Not once. And well, I don't, I, I, don't, I, don't I, I haven't I made don't, it yet. <laughs> you know what? It's, 
profit is, I say profit is, is aspirational. It's what I hope to make on the job. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But overhead is foundational. If I don't cover my overhead, I'm screwed. Right. Yeah. And, and if the, and if I don't make a profit that I hoped to make on the job because slippage, something came up and whatever, but that, that's part of the risk that we take, right? That's what we're, we're hoping to be profitable on that job. Grippage, looking for grippage. Yeah. Um, okay. One of the things that I think is pretty cool about Coke is that you pull out, you can pull out your profit, your, pull your profit out because you have it separated and put it in your general ledger, ledger for company needs, which I think is neat because you actually have a different account set up for each job, no commingling of yeah. funds, which is just cool. Um, yeah. Because because the rest of us generally have one account, and you're going, oh, I'm doing fine, and and you're you are taking expense, you're drawing expenses out of that, and writing it off, but you're not really tracking exactly what's going on, and and this is a this is a neat way to get get at that. But so I like this, but it's unclear where the actual contribution to overhead is coming from. At the end of this conversation, if we've if we've gotten clear in the estimate, and for your listeners, we have I, I want to say it's thirteen different fees that are our cost of project execution fees that are scattered throughout the estimate, right? And mm -hmm. and those fees range from plan review to ordering materials to client meetings to subcontractor meetings to inspections, to quality assurance, um, even accounting for the product, like general accounting for the project, continuous project accounting as invoices come in and checks are written. So we've, we've assigned hours and monies for all of those tasks. And then I decide based on this project, how much I would like to make or how much I think the market can bear, right? And that's going to be my profit. I'm going to put that there. And for the overhead, and I hope people don't glaze over here, you have to look at overhead through this capacity lens that you're also look at your labor. How many projects can you take on per year, right? And how big do they need to be in order for you to assign overhead properly to those jobs. If you've got $300,000 of overhead and you can complete maybe 30 projects in a year, a $30,000 bathroom <clears throat> cannot support the amount of overhead that you need to place on each individual project. It just doesn't work. And the, what I really love about Cope for our company is it was like this big, like <laughs> big aha moment, a big epiphany moment. We have to look at our project calendar for the year. And we have, and that will determine what projects we can take on because if we've got to make an overhead assignment and it requires that projects be of a certain size in order for us to apply it. 
I can apply a $30,000 overhead assignment to a $600,000 project. I'm not going to get pushback. I cannot apply a $30,000 overhead to a $30,000 project. Right? Mm -hmm. And so when I say overhead allocation, it is this process that we go through and we look and we say, okay, what kind of projects are we going to take on for the year? And what scale, what size of project and how long is it going to take? Is it an eight-week project? Is it a six-month project? And I'm going to make a capacity-based overhead assignment to the project. Let's say I'm a young, strong, handsome, just starting out. <laughs> I, I don't know Jack about Jack. I got bags and mad skills. I just landed my first bathroom remodel. How do I cope? Well, hopefully you didn't land it yet because you haven't estimated it yet. <clears throat> of course, no, it's my first bathroom remodel. I just told him it was going to, I was like, ah, it'll be 12 grand. And you're screwed. <laughs> I know. Can't be done. <laughs> I, I, have, I have the tile, the thin set, the paint, the drywall, and a tub. So, yeah. So you have low overhead. Great. That makes you competitive in projects that um, larger companies are not able to be competitive. That's working to your advantage. Go through and do your best to really think through every single task that will be required in this project and then think through all of the non-labor tasks that are required for the project, right? Like writing the proposal, doing the estimate, talking to the client, Talking going to, to visit the client after hours. Service huh? providers, talking to service providers, walking your sub through it. Oh, you might not have subs yet, but yeah. Oh yeah, no. Yeah. Yep. And maybe, it, well, because you don't have an electrician and you, you you have to get an electrician and a plumber to come in and do the parts of the job that are legally, they're required to do. You've got to talk to them about the project, review their estimate, agree to the estimate, have a contract with them, meet them on site, review the work, make sure it's done right. Make sure that the inspection has happened. Uh, and then you also have to account for any delays that might take place because they may or may not have done the work properly or whatever. They got sick, right? And how is that going to affect your schedule? You can't design it to be like perfectly like, you know, CNC machine because that's not what your company is yet. Yeah. And, and to be clear, labor is capacity-based estimation in the, within COPE. You're not... Mm -hmm. The, the labor rate yes. is driven by capacity. Yeah, yes. so I use a capacity-based okay. method for developing the rate. And then I use um, historical data to drive what the task is. And also looking at it like it's a narrow lot. It's up a hill. It's gonna, <laughs> How long is it really going to take to get the, to move all that material? I've got six mm. loads of lumber that are going to come out, and it's all going to have to move to the backyard. And at least 20% of it will get culled twisted sticks and it's going to go back to the front yard and then I'm going to mm -hmm. have to call that return. I got to think through the whole process and I got to assign time, hours, labor to all of that. Either it's management labor or it's field labor. But it's got to be in there. Man, and this is this is some serious remodeling basics going back to the beginning of really doing it wrong with time and not thinking about trips to the store, drying times, just not understanding the full process and walking through it in your in your office before you actually do it. Next question then, does COPE work for trade contractors too? For instance, 
a roofer. Internally, internally, it's always valuable to cool. be on top of your numbers and have a really clear picture of what it really takes. Always. I don't, if you're single trade and you're doing the same task over and over and over and over and over again, much less complex. You can much more easily develop modules for, you know, if it's 10 square versus 40 square, if it's low slope versus, you know, 912, right? You can easily come up with little modules that you set aside for. Absolutely. Um, yeah, for sure. And capacity works really, really well for that. It's like really, really straightforward because the projects are so similar uh, one after the next. Okay, so my plumber should use it too. Plumbers should use it too. They, I mean, <clears throat> most of those, most of the trades know exactly how many days they're going to be on a job. They do. And they're going to be there for... If they don't, they're fired. He's counted on one or two hands. Yeah. Not, not seven months. Yeah. I envy that sometimes. <laughs> but wouldn't it also be run. wonderful if instead of getting round numbers from your subs where they clearly are just picking a number out of thin air, like, right? What's what's the plumbing cost going to be on this project? Uh, and you get a bid back and it says, Plumbing for kitchen, $6,500. And you're like, really? That, you, that looks like you did some heavy math there. Um, oh, yeah. Or they just tell you over the phone. Right? We have, That same electrician who taught me the difference between margin and markup, he's, they've been my electricians for 27 years. Um, and one of the reasons I love working with them is that they, uh, when they estimate, they estimate, like they have very, super, super detailed estimating. And we were able to bring the basis of their estimating into our estimating database. So I know, you know, if I'm feed, feeding, if I'm going to feed and wire a single switch, what that costs for each additional fixture, what I should add. I mean, I can almost do the estimate on my own. Um, and it also means that we make changes. If we take a switch out or we take a fixture out, I have a really clear understanding of what that's going to do to the numbers. Okay. I love working. And that, you know, maybe this is another thing I'll touch on remodelers are generally not trusted by the public 100 percent. neither are builders right when or i started up or down from used car salespeople the way that we come up with what the cost of a project should be and then our reluctance to share that with the client yeah it, it automatically uh, you know it's a pain point it's a pain point that that if you look at any of the studies uh, that have been done or the surveys um, on consumers, you know what it, what are the biggest challenges with the idea of doing a remodeling project or building something, and it is not understanding why the project costs what it costs, and feeling like they're scared of being ripped off. And the fastest way to build trust. And the fastest way to differentiate yourself in this market is to know your numbers so well that when the client says, so what's driving this? You can say, here, let's look at it together. Let's sit at the same time side of the table. Let's go through the estimates that we got in from the trade partners. Let's look at the numbers. There's a lot of little numbers. And 
that's that's why how and what and why the project costs what it costs. And sometimes people confuse transparency with this notion of like line item pricing, as if that's a first line. I don't know why line item pricing is a bad thing in the first place, unless you've attached profit to the lines, in which case, yeah, you're you're losing money when they take something out of the project. But being really clear about what all of the lines are that drive the cost, it's never, it's never what the clients think. They, they are always looking for the big, big number, right? And mm -hmm. you know, you've got you've got $35,000 in your cabinet package. Well, how can I reduce the cost? Well, we could do less cabinets. Let's open up the cabinet makers numbers and let's, hey, maybe we don't do the pantry in phase one. Or maybe we don't do the built-in bookshelves in the library. And there they are. It was $7,200 for the bookshelves. And let's just take that out. I go to my estimate. I take out that $7,200 for the built-in bookshelves. The project dropped by $7,200. I had no profit tied to that $7,200. My profit stayed the same. My, I held my margin. I held my fees. All of my costs were doing the project. They're locked up nice and tight. We can go over here and we can, I don't care if you're doing level one or level five countertops. I don't care what the cost of the stone is. I got to manage the stone. I got to order the stone. I got to oversee the fabrication, but I'm not a fabricator. The fabricators are going to, they're pricing the stone based on the risk of them damaging the stone. Yeah. Not me. This is interesting. This is like a, we could talk about this subject <laughs> of, of, of changing the scope of a project for days. Yeah. To take your project and say it's this and then deconstruct it before you've started is really challenging. And I've really, I, 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 I found it more valuable to stay the course, try to keep them on course, you know, because also what happens here is if they do the project after cutting stuff out, they're not as happy with the product. Mm -hmm. They wish they had just spent the money because they spent a hundred grand anyway, and they saved 10 grand to not have yeah. something they really want, have something they really wanted. This gets into yeah. like guiding your clients. Cause I'm not after that, the little bit of profit, if they took something out and I lost some on Marco, it, it is just saying, you know, in my experience, you will be less happy with this. If we get rid of this product, because I know mm -hmm. you want, I can see the look in your eye when you said you were going to get these. Yeah. So what I will, I, I can tell you from, from personal experience on with my own clients and also anecdotally from people who are using this, the difference is you get to that point and you go through all of the, the whole project and all of those parts. And what changes for the client is now they understand why the, the project is, why is this project $685,000? because of all of this mm -hmm. and you homeowner can take out any part of that that you would like and you can change the fixtures and you can change the cabinets and but unless you take the addition off the house unless you take some part of that project out we're not going to see substantive shift but then it is their choice and they're making that choice because then they what they do is they value it they're like look at it and they're like yeah, we could save $2,000 if we used a different stone or we could use a different faucet. 
but I really like that faucet and it's at that little number, it's worth it. And like, you're not the bad guy then. You're not the person who's having to like dig in your heels. You you can get creative with them. You can be like, what if we did this? What if you did this? And they will then say, no, 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 no. I, you know, we just, it's going to be more than we had we thought, And but but it's what we want to do. And they bring themselves there. Okay, the next two questions, I'm not going to have you answer now. I think we'll answer them in the live because we're running long. People are going to glaze right. over and they already did it. I mean, they're out there snoozing. We're killing them. I do have a question from Mitch Lockhart at AM Installs on Instagram. And it's separate topic, but he wants to know what you think about builders offering financing and if it's worth it. Well, uh, it can be. There are some there are some really uh, interesting companies out there that offer financing up to a hundred thousand dollars now. It's unsecured financing, um, and depending on the types of projects that you're doing, it could be a super useful tool. Um, you have the potential to make money on the money, which could be a part of your revenue model, um, or you just get to facilitate um, the project itself. I, I know remodelers who work in all those different variations, some who even take on the, the fees and work it into the cost of the project. And then they themselves manage the, um, there's no additional fee passed on to the consumer then. It's like a 0% interest type loan, but the contractor is actually absorbing the fees for the loan, but then putting them into the project. Loopy, loopy. Um, I haven't done it. I've just sort of gotten, gotten uh, thinking that it might be something to consider doing as those loan amounts have gotten to the point where they would be useful. Um, but uh, yeah, why not? It's another tool. I've never done it nor considered it, but I see it's happening a lot now. And, you know, there are a lot of clients out there that are hardworking. They want a better home and a lot of potential clients and they can't afford it right then but they want it and they're ready to do something and i think that's a great option I, pumpkin spice latte or pumpkin spice hummus oh shit <laughs> is there really a pumpkin spice hummus out there <laughs> i don't know i don't know there's chocolate hummus i saw that and i my friend pete is really upset about what they're doing to hummus the best, hummus. the best hummus, the best, hummus, the best yeah. hummus. So hummus is actually a warm dish, not a cold dish. Mm. And the best hummus I had um, uh, was in Israel. And what's really funny is that the Arab community makes the best hummus. So what, it, despite religious or political tensions, whatever, in Israel, everyone goes to the Arab restaurants for the best hummus. It's like this, like beautiful thing where everyone comes together around food and it is hot and fragrant and absolutely delicious it's like the it's like what oatmeal is to the west except oatmeal is gross and hummus is amazing i think the best hummus i had was in morocco but it might have been it might have tasted better sitting in front of the pyramids in egypt <laughs> and, and, so i'm not sure um, All better than the stuff you get in the at the grocery store from the fridge. Let's just be clear. Oh yeah. 
we actually have um, we actually have a falafel stand here that uh, the owner is from Israel. He imports everything, and you know, I've, the food is is phenomenal, and it's becoming like world renowned for being one of the best uh, falafel experiences oh. that there is. People, you know, we get travelers from all over the world, and they all go there. So that's pretty neat. Lebanon, oh, falafel in Lebanon, and hummus as well, I guess. Just, yeah. So there's so much good food in the world, Mike. There is. Okay. We are way off topic because I love it. Because it, wouldn't be our, it wouldn't be us if we didn't go off topic. <laughs> I know. Do you think anybody's still listening? Brant, Brant Taylor Brant, Brant, and, Brant and Aaron. Aaron and Aaron's listening. Gina's listening too. Gina's listening too. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite hot dish? Tater tot. I'm a Minnesotan. Tater tot hot dish is the only hot dish. Now we know. The hot dish behind the man. What are the best job site jams? Classical. Anything classical. Like, like, like Beethoven or classic rock, or like yeah, like Bach or Beethoven, forty-minute-long pieces. I'm not. Oh. You think I'm? You think I'm messing? I'm. I'm dead. I'm super serious. The three-minute format for a song creates this like start-stop-start-stop start, stop rhythm on the job site, and forty-minute-long pieces of music, like they keep the flow going. So. Well, you could just listen to the Almond Brothers, The Grateful Dead. The Almond you know, Brothers of The Grateful Dead, yeah, they do. You know, you, they, you know, one song would be like an hour and a half or feel like one song. I, my, so my sorry, pers- sorry deadheads. <laughs> I, I like to, I, I will throw on like a Lyle Lovett or a John Prine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's my, that for me, that's what I like to work to now. Mm-hmm. I can't listen to music with lyrics when I'm at the desk. It has to be instrumental i just and even some instrumental music i'm just my mind is my, very drawn and, and captive to music so at the desk mike it's got to be jurassic five or um, people under the stairs oh funny um, yeah i dig some <laughs> j i dig some j5 for sure okay who killed biggie and tupac i thought you might know yeah the ghost in, of elvis <laughs> in one short sentence what is the key to becoming a successful contractor? Use the COPE method for your estimating and be a nice person with good ethics. Have a compass that points in the right direction. And uh, if you don't love it, don't do it. Thank you for that. If you don't love it, don't do it. It's true got to it's got to it's got to resonate inside you you can be a business owner and be in the field i think i've said this before you can be the guy slinging the hammer and you can or gal slinging the hammer and you can hire someone to run the company if if you don't love running companies hire someone to do it for you yeah we could do a whole pot on 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 hiring help and and figuring out what you're what you're really good at and pursuing that and letting the other people do the stuff you're not good at for sure 
Uh, what's your favorite tool? I know what it is, but no one else My does. My favorite tool? Yeah. Ooh. That's kind of a, actually, that's a tough one. I have this, I have this rear handle Makita that I really, really, really love. But I have this, you guys are going to laugh. <laughs> Many years ago, I picked up this little Bosch 12 volt drill and driver set. Like men in black, you know, like they got all the big guns and they give Will Smith the little pea shooter thing. It's this tiny little thing. That's what these are like. And they're the one that came with the little carry case. Yeah. A little fabric. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. The, the drills are tiny. They're great for cabinets, for cabinet screws. Like phenomenal for cabinet screws. And yeah. it's got that one 90 adjustable one. Like, yeah. Yes. They're, they're like super versatile. You can, that, I've got other stuff that's bigger, but it's got too much torque. It wants to go spin too fast. You know, it's like, yeah. So I don't know. What did you think I was going to say, Mike? What did you think my favorite tool is going to be? Your brain. Ah. Uh, but hey, your your ten volt. I think they're ten volt. Those Bosch. Ten volt. I. That was like my first battery tool. I think. Like it, twenty something years ago. Yeah, I was in the 18 volt DeWalt monster heavy stuff. And then those things showed up and I was like, there's no way oh, this yeah. can do anything. And it was like this little pea shooter. And I was like, it can do everything. I guess we were into the 18 volts by then. Yeah. Your wrist would be burning. <laughs> They're so heavy. I have one. I actually have one uh, in the cabinet behind me here. It's like my in-house. I don't know. I can't get rid of stuff. <laughs> It's it's ridiculous. Okay, the brain. I like that. Answer. My 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 favorite tool is the brain. What is the most useful tool? Well, now I gotta say the brain because you said this is the brain. Okay. Well, what's the where have you been on my life tool? That's you, Mike. Where have you been all my life? Ah, pushing the questions. Um. Uh, so for business, I would say they're the. Clear Estimates is a tool that I use. It's our estimating tool. And I was in Excel spreadsheets before that. And Clear Estimates, when I got into it, was a where have you been all my life moment. Did you know, Michael, that last week I learned that the Contracting Handbook podcast was in the top 5% of all podcasts globally? That's amazing. I did I did hear that. And I, I was telling my wife about it because I was super proud of you. I think that that is awesome that, that you've gotten there independently recorded and produced no sponsors i'm pretty proud of that too it's but it's not me it's not just me it's the it's the people that come on and and share everything they know openly no one no one's hiding anything because everybody wants to have a better building community mm -hmm. so do you think that people should write a review for an independently recorded and produced <laughs> podcast on iTunes right now. I think people should, what is it? Smack the like button and write a nice positive review and um, do whatever you can to, to keep this engine going and keep this train moving forward. I think it's, it, it is super valuable. Thank you. I, you got, and you guys, I have some really exciting news coming that I can't talk about yet, but your reviews, your likes, Subscribing to my email really matters right now. That's all I got to say. 
smash that Spotify rating. Last pitch. If people want to really dig into this, we are doing our live thing on Instagram, but then also if they, if they want to implement this in their business, there's that cost of website and the class they can sign up for. Excellent. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, buddy. Thanks for asking the questions. Okay, you guys, we're going to go live on Thursday, the 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, 5 p.m. Mountain Time, 3 p.m. Alaska Time, 11 a.m. Friday, Australia, Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> and we're going to talk about... We're going to talk about uh, change orders. We're going to talk about escalation, the cost of products moving up and down, and how this method of estimating manages all that as well as more stuff. And then of course, we'll get hit upon any questions you guys have. You can DM us both, uh, share this on social media, tag us, get the word out, and we'll get together on Thursday and learn about a lot more. Today's shout out goes to David Peterson of DLP Brand LLC out of Ogden, Utah. David's a Finnish carpenter and he loves what the contracting handbook is doing for the trades. Thank you for your review, my friend. Okay, people, before I go, one more thing. Remember, you don't have to be a perfect contractor. Just keep learning, keep striving for excellence, create value, and stay true to yourself. Like Andrew Itnauer of Masters Roofing Memphis said in season one of the pod, you have to be a practitioner. You guys have a great week. We'll see you on Thursday in that IG Live. That's all I got. Later. Man, I wrote this this thing out and I was like, sweet, this is going to be like 45 succinct minutes. He <laughs> and took twice as long. Hey, I must be a remodeler. Took twice as long as I thought it was going to. <laughs>